Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here to preview week 11 of college baseball. It's a busy week around the country. You've got a uh, a top 10 series in the ACC as Virginia Tech heads to Charlottesville to take on UVA. Another big showdown in the Big 12 with Oklahoma State headed to Texas. And uh, what do you know? It's a top 25 SEC showdown with Auburn and Tennessee. Going to get into all three of those series here a lot more. Got some news from around the country to touch on as well. So like I said, busy day here on the week 11 preview episode. Joe, it's uh, it's that kind of it's that time of year where we've got big series and all the conferences and uh, we're getting into a newsy part of the the season it's uh it's all happening here uh the last few days here of, of april yeah we uh it feels like the again the the changing of the seasons where uh, out here in durham we had our first and i'm sure people who live in the, even deeper in the south like ha- had this phenomenon weeks ago but we just yesterday had our first summer-esque thunderstorm where cloud like really menacing clouds rolled in at 3 30 in the afternoon dumped a bunch of rain on us for five minutes and then went away um, so the, the seasons are changing and oh, by the way, that type of thunderstorm is coming to a conference tournament near you before too much longer, <laughs> except um, for the big 12, as, uh, as those ads yeah. say, if you've watched any big 12 game on ESPN plus this year, <laughs> they do advertise. Yeah. College baseball in a climate controlled environment, which, you know what, like I kind of made fun of that the first time I heard it, but then like the more I think about it, I'm like, you know, if you're going to try to bring casuals out to this thing, which let's be honest, that's what they're aiming for, right? The, the person who has season tickets to Dish Falk or what have you is probably not, they're either going to go or they're not. It, but if you're going to get casuals, like an alum of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, Texas Tech, TCU, whatever, in North Texas to come out, like that, that's something, you know, if it's 90 degrees outside, 95 degrees outside, climate controlled, oh, 95 with a chance of thunderstorms, like climate controlled could definitely uh, be an effective sales pitch. So you know what? I was inclined to make fun of it at first, but uh, the more you and I have kind of talked about it and the more you've mentioned that uh, it will be nice that, that is a conference tournament that will not have lightning delays, the more I'm kind of into it as a sales pitch, if I'm honest. I have long advocated, long meaning for like the last like three or four years, that when the Rays do resolve their stadium situation, that the SEC should buy the trop and make it the home of all of their conference tournaments. Like they can play basketball in there. They can play baseball there. I'm sure they could put volleyball and whatever else they wanted in there. That's uh that's a very selfish take. Uh, but I'm here for it. Uh, I mean, you know, let's, if any let's, conference... let's get climate con- normalized co- climate controlled conference <laughs> tournaments. That's what I'm saying. Like if any conference could make that work, like it feels like the sec could pull some strings and flex some muscle and whether it's buying the trop or whether it's just like, Hey, Hoover, you really want us to stay here, huh? Like, what do you say about a little public private partnership on trying to get this done or, you know, whatever, like, 
if, if any conference could make it happen, it seems like the SEC would be that one. But uh, it's funny, conference tournament time always brings out the, um, and some, you know, some are bad faith arguments, some are arguments being made in good faith, but there's nothing like conference tournament, the tournaments that bring out the um, newspaper columnist that goes to like two college baseball games a year and then hammers out the college baseball games are too long and they never start on time column. Uh, there, there's no better time for a hacky columnist to pull out that thing. And look, they're not wrong on some of those points, but like, you know, this is, this is not a new issue that we're just now coming to a conclusion of. And so, um, but it is a good time. What I am here for is outside the box solutions, which I've always thought, you know, the seating would be the big issue, but, you know, doing a conference tournament, especially if you're a bigger league, trying to do four games in a day and what have you for multiple days you know, finding some sort of complex where you could stagger the games, like not just in a literal, like we have them now, but I mean, literally like one starts at, you know, 10 AM and then one starts on the field on the other side at 1230 or something. So that the first game isn't done yet, more likely than not. And the other one is starting up. Like there's just, I don't know, there's very little reason why we have to do it the way we do it, except that the way it's always been done and, and just to capture the, the ticket revenue. But I feel like a complex situation could maybe kind of figure that out. It's just that I don't think that really exists to that level. Yeah, I don't think that's a solution for the SEC or the ACC or th- these conferences that are also trying to provide inventory. But there's no reason why the WAC couldn't do that. Don't they play at a Mesa? Like they, they're playing at a minor league or a, a, a spring training complex anyway. There are there are multiple places. Right. Why is yeah, the Scott WAC trying Stadium to do this all at once? Year. Well, no, wait, that's Pac-12. Scott yeah, so yes, Mesa, you're right. You're right. So point stands. Yeah, I mean, that would be, yeah, if you're a league like the WAC, you could you could definitely do that for sure. We got ideas. The uh, Joe and Teddy Consulting Service is ready to go. Uh, contact us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy, BA. Uh, all right, Joe, let's get to some of this news uh, from, from the last week. Uh, let's start with the one that happened last week, actually. Uh, Dallas Baptist was announced that they are going to Conference USA next year. That came out last Friday officially. DBU leaving the Missouri Valley Conference, which has been its Division I home for the last, uh, I should have looked this up, it's like 15 years. Uh, and now they are headed to the New Look Conference USA. Joe wrote about this in Three Strikes, uh, which you can read about over at, you can read over at baseballamerica.com. So, Joe, I will. I'll let you, since you actually wrote about it and all I did was tweet about it, uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you say, say your piece about DBU leaving uh, your, your beloved Missouri Valley and, and headed to your, uh, your new beloved Conference USA. Yeah, the, uh, as the co-host of uh, MVC First Pitch uh, teleconferences with the coaches, I feel uniquely prepared to talk about it uh yes they've been in the valley since the 2014 season um they spent one year in the WAC. that's a little bit of lost history there uh wild history of the WAC membership (laughs) yeah i mean like the WAC that 2013 was a weird year in the WAC because it it also had like utsa i think is like a stopover um it was when the WAC was still trying to figure out what it wanted to be and it's post rice right i'm sorry post rice Post Rice, yeah, Rice moved to CUSA in 2006 or for the 2006 baseball season. Um, 2005 with its last baseball season, the WAC. So, um, so it's, I think I looked at it from three different way directions when I wrote about it in three strikes. From CUSA standpoint, they're really, we don't have to belabor the point on this. It makes total sense. DBU gives 
that league kind of a, you know, alongside Louisiana Tech, arguably a flagship baseball program. And Liberty. And yeah, Liberty. And, and DBU is differentiated a little bit in that, you know, Liberty's on the come up, Louisiana Tech's certainly on the come up, but, you know, DBU hosted a regional as far back as 2015. Like it's got the track record of doing that. It's It's been to super regionals a couple of times. Last year, it was one game away from that. So it comes in as a ready-made, ready-to-go postseason team in a CUSA now that will be not what CUSA is in its current iteration or the iteration before that, frankly, but should still be a pretty good league. There's little reason to imagine that it can't be basically what the MVC has been for Dallas Baptist the last uh, eight years now, where you know DBU starts off as a like I said, a ready-made postseason team. And then all it takes is a second team to have a year that kind of coasts off of that or another team wins a conference tournament and DBU gets in as an at-large, which is a thing that the Valley has done to get two bids before. So no brainer from CUSA standpoint. From Dallas Baptist standpoint, it makes sense. It's not, I don't think it's as much of a no-brainer. It does make sense though. It's a better league. I think this iteration of CUSA, even if it's not the best iteration of CUSA is still better than the Missouri Valley. Maybe you could make an argument that it's just marginally better, but still, I think I'd argue that it's better. There's also a geography advantage. Like there are still going to be long road trips in that league, you know, getting from Dallas to Miami to play FIU, Dallas to Lynchburg, Virginia to play Liberty, but they will also have bus trips to Ruston and Huntsville. And oh, by the way, it's a little warmer in the CUSA's footprint than it is in the Missouri Valley footprint. So that, that will just be a nice thing for, for a, a bunch of guys who are not from cold weather places typically. So um, it makes sense from DBU standpoint, even if you could say that oh, they had a pretty good thing going in the Valley, which I think you could reasonably argue, right? I mean, they are the team to beat every year in the Valley. They run that league, even though this year they're having, having some struggles in the league this year, but they run that league. The league kind of revolves around them being the postseason team every year. And then the question is who's going to be the second team basically. And that that's not a bad place to be in a conference, frankly, uh, just ask, you know, Gonzaga basketball 20 years ago, right? Obviously now it's graduated to a different thing, but DBU is not in too dissimilar place in where Gonzaga basketball was 20 years ago when they became the class of the WCC. So the trouble is from the Missouri Valley standpoint, um, you know, it's still going to be a quality baseball league if for no other reason than the Missouri Valley cares about baseball. And that's not just now true. It has long been true with programs like Creighton, Wichita State, historically good programs. Those are no longer the league, though, and that's kind of the issue is you lost Wichita State, you lost Creighton in a previous generation of realignment. Now you've lost DBU. They are adding, and they're adding Illinois-Chicago, they're adding Murray State, they're adding Belmont. Um, Illinois-Chicago is a good baseball program. Belmont has potential, but there's no arguing that that's making up for what DBU has left with. And so now you've got a situation like you've seen in other conferences where sometimes more is better and sometimes more is just more. And it feels a little like for the Missouri Valley, more is just more with these additions. And it's going to be watered down a little bit. And so while the MVC might find a way to be a two-bid league every so often, I just don't think it's going to be able to do that quite as much without DBU being the type of team that is that every year. So it's a tough scene for Missouri Valley for sure. The analog I I think of here is when Coastal left the Big South uh, that, of course, happened right after the national championship in 16. Um, you know, Coastal Carolina had been the behemoth in the Big South. It was in the same way where you would pencil in DBU at the number one spot in your projections and then figure out, okay, who's second? It was that, that was what Coastal was in the Big South. 
and they left and that looked like you know it created an opening for for new teams and initially uh you know liberty was i think they were still in the big south at the time and they might have taken advantage of it uh except that they left um so it's been campbell that has kind of emerged as the new new king in the big south um and you've seen like usc upstate under mike mcguire has like come up and um you know been able to to challenge them some but we don't talk about the big south as a two-bit league anymore uh we talk about campbell maybe being able to be a three seed or something um or maybe camp like last year campbell it was a two-bit league because campbell got upset in the the conference tournament but it, it it has to be that kind of thing to get them two bids and i think that's where you're headed with the missouri valley now caveating on that i guess is that the mvc had is like the foremost expert at managing rpi to its benefit um now they're going to absolutely lose something without dbu adding in and helping their rpi but look illinois state indiana state these are i mean even bradley these are teams that consistently have strong rpis regardless of what their records are so you know they do have that going for them um if missouri state can recapture what it was 10 years ago that would be massive for the league and maybe with dbo out of the picture there's an opportunity for something like that to happen but it's going to remain a strong baseball league uh i will be very interested to see who takes over if anyone does or if it's just a much more competitive race on an annual basis yeah that's that's the question i, I think yeah you brought up a lot of interesting things there i won't we could you know do obviously a lot more on it we don't require that right now but it, it is going to be an open question of what the MVC becomes. Does someone fill in the void or does it just kind of become an annual free for all with a team that kind of tends to be near, you know, does Indiana state become a team that is an annual contender in some years, they're an at-large team, some years they're not, or does it, is it a true free for all or, you know, what there, I think there are a lot of possibilities and that's, that's, I think kind of what we're talking around here is that that that's where the uncertainty is here because from the other two angles, CUSA got better. DBU got into a, a better league, although it remains to be seen how much better, but on paper better. Um, the question is where, where does the MVC go from here? It was just a tough, a tough deal for them because they, they had a pretty, pretty good thing going and kudos to them, by the way, like way back when it took a little bit of imagination to be like DBU in the Missouri Valley and just for baseball, huh? Um, that took a lot of imagination. So like kudos to them for pulling it off and, and maybe it was never meant to last because it was such a square peg in a round hole, but man, like that square peg fit in the round hole pretty well for a while. Absolutely. Uh, okay. The other news item that I wanted to mention is that on Monday night, I guess it was, uh, Tuesday night, whatever night it was early this week, um, Austin P state announced that it has fired coach Travis Jansen who's in his, was in his seventh season uh, as, as head coach of the governors. Um, his final record at Austin P was just under 500. Uh, they are on their way to the second straight under 500 finish overall. They had not made regionals uh, in his tenure. Uh, so in a lot of respects, not surprising that they would be looking to to make a change obviously rather surprising that it happened in april we don't see many mid-season firings in college baseball uh but that's what happened here 
Uh, and so now the governors will be looking for a new coach as they prepare to next season move from the Ohio Valley to the ASUN. Yeah, it's uh, speaking of, you know, schools and programs moving up into a little bit better neighborhood. Um, that's not all that different in the ASUN's a better league. And so the idea that, that Austin P would want to reset in order to do so, especially when you're coming off of not having made a regional in a while, is not all that surprising. Austin P also is a place that is has pretty pretty proud athletic tradition. Um, it's been a while, but generally um, pretty proud. And so the, the idea they that they made were three be- straight regionals uh, about ten years ago now that that is like the heart of that run. And they made like five regionals in seven years or something like that. It, it, it you don't have to go that far back to find Austin P being pretty good at baseball. You ever heard like the the stories of like the uh, the, the fly is open? You ever heard that Boston P? Uh, yes, I, I believe uh, that that's a basketball thing where Indeed. they had a, uh, a a player whose name that w- like resounded with that. Yeah, like his nickname was the Fly. Or... Yeah, yeah, but it, regardless, like it, you know, the Let's Go P is a uh, James Fly Williams was his name. I just I just googled it, which you could probably hear me typing in the background there. But uh, <laughs> the Fly is open. Let's Go P was the uh, was the chant. Anyway, regardless, not a surprise that Austin P would. Um, want to reset, but to your point, kind of a surprise that it was an OVC, soon to be a Sun program, that was the first place to give us a ostensibly performance-based coaching change during the season. Yes, we're up to nine openings now, I believe, and uh, three have opened since the season started, uh, San Francisco and BYU being the other two. Uh, BYU was a resignation, and USF uh, was a firing following, you know, we talked about it on here, following the report of, uh, uh, and the lawsuit regarding a lot of different allegations, uh, in that program, you can read about that over on baseballamerica.com. If you missed that episode now about a month ago, and you can keep track of all the college baseball coaching changes, uh, as well, tracking all of those throughout the year. Uh, and you can, uh, Keep, keep that page bookmarked. I update it every time there is a new change or a new hiring or whatever. And uh, it's only going to get busier from here over the next uh, month and a half or so. So uh, a lot of changes still to come in, uh, in and around the country. Uh, Joe, last piece of news before uh, we get to this week's games. And that is, uh, wanted to circle back to the conversation we had on Monday about Georgia and Bucky's and how they have stuffed Bucky's mascot uh, in their dugout now, or at least they did against Alabama. I uh, reached out to, uh, to UGA and was told that while they were uh, traveling between Athens and Tuscaloosa last weekend, they stopped at Bucky's. Most of the team had never been to a Bucky's, which is understandable. Uh, Previously, the Bucky's footprint has really just been Texas. Now it's expanding across the Southeast. So they were, of course, in awe of, uh, of the Bucky's experience. And I guess a couple of beavers were purchased. Joe, does Bucky, is it, is the beaver's name Bucky? Like what, what, what is the mascot's name? Yeah, I have to assume so. I actually don't know offhand, but I, I have to, uh, I have to assume that's his name. Yeah. Well, okay. So a, a couple of stuffed Bucky's were purchased and there was actually one in the bullpen didn't see that one on TV, one in the dugout, uncertain uh, about the future, uh, whether they will continue to be there or not, but they did win the series. So uh, my guess is they will be. This is, these are baseball players after all. 
I can confirm uh, Bucky the Beaver spelled like so. Bucky's the store is B U C dash E E apostrophe S. Bucky is spelled like the name Bucky B U C K Y. But yes, Bucky, Bucky the Beaver. I would also get like they may continue to use that thing, but like let's be real, like stuffed animals are not going to travel well. Like that thing is going to get dirty. Like it's that is. I mean, it might continue, and maybe that adds to the the lore of it because it's going to be all raggedy. But if they take this thing all the way through a postseason run, like it is. It is going to be worse for wear, I have to imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's fair, but Coastal had uh, its monkey that, you know, made it all the way to Omaha in 16. Um, I don't remember what team it is that's running around with a panda these days. It might be Austin P. actually. Somebody from like that general part of the country, maybe it's UT Martin. I don't know. Somebody has a panda that they're they're running around with and like they went to the trash panda stadium and like that's kind of how it became I became aware of it. So uh these guys will figure it out <laughs> did you did you like beaver nuggets uh i mean yeah the the bucky's beaver nuggets are uh are absolutely outstanding and i hope that some of those were purchased by uh by the yeah. uga players as well did we talk about beaver nuggets on the podcast before i mean i don't think we did i suppose there's a chance it's there's, always a uh, chance. They're, they're basically caramel corn yeah yeah, but they and they don't look like popcorn pieces. They they look like yeah. I mean, they're not exactly caramel corn, but like that's that's generally what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's the kind of thing like it's like a it's corn like, pop, I, except it's caramel. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like it's definitely the thing where like you eat the first handful or the the first little bit, and you're like, man, that's really good. And then you go back for the second handful, and you're like, yeah, that's still really good. And then you eat like the third little bit that you're going to eat, and then you're sick. You know, it's like <laughs> I don't want to eat these again until the next time i pass a bucky's because it definitely is that there's so sweet and very tasty but so sweet it just it reaches a precipice that it eventually falls over of being like a little bit too much but i'm i'm here for it. the other thing is the like i like the kolaches um from bucky's which is a, a distinctly texas thing i've heard i did not know that growing up in texas i didn't realize that kolaches or i've actually been corrected that the plural of kolache is actually kolache and not kolaches um, but you know, jalapeno and sausage, and they all are filled with cheese. And there's also like some sweet versions of them. Um, that's my, my, my real go-to when I go to Bucky's is the kolaches. Highly We're not going to get into it here, but they're actually Czech. And, uh, so like, they're also in like other parts of the Midwest, but they're hmm. turned out to be, a they huge tend to be Czech. sweet though. They tend to be sweet though. In a lot of other places, right? Like, they right. Tend to be, so like, like the, yeah, the ones that came from Eastern Europe are exclusively sweet. And I think the the checks today that like aren't Texan are like, what happened here uh, when they see the savory ones? But the, there's this incredibly rich history of them. But yes, in uh, in Texas and at Bucky's, they are uh, they are certainly worth the stop at the pastry counter. And yes, we're talking about a truck stop that has a pastry counter. Yeah, it's like a, that's an interesting little piece of Texas history, too, is like part of the reason why they are so pervasive in Texas is that in central Texas, there is like large pockets of population that is from that part of Europe. It's why, you know, there are towns like new Braunfels uh, located in central Texas that kind of have that, that, you know, um, uh, origin. So um, that is, I guess, part of the reason why they became so pervasive there is that there was, you know, people that was, that that brought those with them from, you know, where they'd come from in Europe and and it kind of just grew from there. So central Texas is kind of like a little, a little pocket of a different culture in that way. All right. So that's the news from around college baseball. Obviously (laughs) what's happening at Georgia is clearly the most important thing here, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll transition here to, uh, 
to focus in on the week 11 matchups. Um, and uh, we'll do that here. We'll start with uh, Virginia Tech going to Virginia. We'll do that in a second here. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. All right, Joe, let's start the uh, week 11 preview here uh, in Charlottesville. Got Virginia Tech going to Virginia. This is a top 10 matchup. Uh, this is a you know, in-state rivalry. I didn't do the full, full, full dive through the you know, more than a century of Virginia and Virginia Tech playing baseball against each other. Uh, but I'm pretty prepared to say that this is the biggest iteration of this rivalry. It, I am 100% ready to say it's the biggest iteration of this rivalry in the 21st century. They are both top 10 schools or both top 10 teams this year. Both schools are, you know, aiming at hosting regionals, uh, which, which Virginia Tech has not done in a decade. Uh, it's, uh, it's a big series in terms of standings and, and postseason and all the rest of it. Uh, but most importantly, it's just two really interesting teams with two great offenses going at it this weekend. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, until you said that Virginia Tech uh, hasn't hosted since since 2013 or however however it was phrased, it, it reminded me of the fact that's also just the last time they made the postseason. So that's true, Virginia yes. Tech's going to make the postseason. <laughs> They're just going to host. That's the way it goes. Um, yes, the, I, I think I agree with you. The headline here is the fact that, you know, these are two really powerful offenses that can score runs in bunches. Uh, would you believe me if I told you, though, these two teams lead the ACC in conference ERA? because that is also true (laughs) Uh, so i first of all i'm not stunned second of all that's an indictment on the acc well yeah i mean i I won't call out some programs that are on this but (laughs) yes uh it has been a tough 
tough time on pitchers. And, you know, it should be said the offenses are good, right? Like Virginia and Virginia Tech are not the only two teams where, you know, we feel that way about their offense. So, like, that's some of what there is to do with it. But I, w- I was a little bit surprised. Uh, Virginia 450 ERA, less surprised, by the way, as an aside, with Virginia being there, because we've talked about before that, you know, for a while they were among the national leaders in ERA. So it kind of stood to reason that they'd be in the mix there. But Virginia Tech 463 second in the RA and, you know, you know, kind of mea culpa on Virginia's pitching. Now it was true that when we talked about them backsliding a little bit, like that has been true in terms of, you know, Nate Savino has been good, not great, uh, lately. Whereas early in the season, he was great and looked like he was making good on all the promise he had coming to college. He has been wonderfully solid for them. Uh, you know, Jake Barry exploded onto the scene and now he's had a little bit of trouble going deep into games. And some of that I think is strategy on Virginia's part because they do have a good bullpen. You know, I really like some of the individual pieces out there. So that that's part of it there. But what I was going to say is a little mea culpa on Brian Gursky. Like he has been so good for them this year. And I just had relatively low expectations for that because I actually think I'm probably being kind by saying he was just a guy at USC and you know, he shows up at Virginia and he's just been a different pitcher this year. And we're, you know, we're long enough into this thing where like the, the flukes have largely gone out the window. Now you kind of are what you are. And, and he's sitting there with an ERA under 250, and, you know, more than a strikeout per inning and, um, you know, 225 batting average against, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's been their best guy. And that is certainly not something I had on the board. And if, if I'm, if I'm being, being really real, I kind of assumed by the time we got to the business end of the season, that maybe they would have kind of moved him out of the rotation. Maybe we'd be looking at something more like, you know, Savino and, and Neek and, and maybe Barry or, or what have you. But I just kind of, I just kind of assume by the time we get to this part of the season, they would have found a different solution and they haven't had to because he's been excellent. You know, it's absolutely wild when you look at the Virginia bullpen, which has been very good. Uh, they don't really have a closer because they have four saves this year. <laughs> They've won 31 games. They only have four saves. It's remarkable. Um, but Jay Wolfuck has been incredible as a freshman, uh, coming out of the bullpen and Devin Ortiz, uh, you know, continues to just pitch important innings for this team and come up with big clutch hits. Uh, he had a walk-off grand slam last weekend against, uh, UNC. He's, uh, he's having an incredible season as well. Uh, I mean, the one player that, that kind of has come back to earth, you know, you talked about Savino, uh, offensively, Jake Geloff you know, you'll remember was among the national home run leaders. I think he was the first of 14, maybe certainly that was the first of 12 somewhere in there. Uh, he only has 15 home runs this year, only has 15 home runs. It, he, uh, for a while was, was just hugely the, the driving force of this offense. And they've been able to weather him, you know, kind of coming back to earth a little bit. And I think that that's first of all, very important for UVA. Second speaks to the depth uh, of the lineup that, that we're looking at here, but none of that's really surprising with UVA. I mean, this is a team that we expected to be good coming in that had been so good for, for so long. Virginia Tech, on the other hand, um, when you talk about that pitching staff, I mean, that's not the association I make with this Virginia Tech team. I, I just think of them as being so offensive. Uh, you know, when you look at the, the national home run leaders, they're right there with Tennessee. Um you know, and some of it I think is because the, you know, they have that home run celebration where they bring out the hammer and it's so distinctive and it happens so often that I just, 
you know, that, that is just the association I have with Virginia tech. They've hit 80 home runs in 37 games, uh, which actually is only good for second in the ACC. Uh, Georgia tech is, is slightly ahead, but uh, Virginia tech is ahead on a, a per game basis. And it just feels like that hammer comes out all the time. And I, it, it's going to be really interesting to see which pitching staff is more up to the task this weekend to, to deal with these, uh, the, these big time lineups. Agreed. And I, I think the secret sauce for Virginia tech has also been that offense is really, really good, but we see, I mean, you, you bring up Georgia tech. I mean, we see with Georgia tech that that kind of offense can only get you so far. Right. I mean, uh, their conference ERA is over eight might be, it might be eight even. Um, and they don't defend well. Virginia tech on the other hand, like that, the other things plus that offense give them so much margin for error because they score runs like that. They pitch it pretty well. And Oh, by the way, like I think they've discussed, we've talked about it before, so we don't, you know, need to go over it all again, but like, I think they found a real dude in drew Hackenberg. Like that was kind of last year. One of their issues with Virginia tech is they were doing a nice job of piecing it together on the mound. And it kind of all seemed to fall apart later in the year. And it, I think part of that was they didn't have like that guy at all kind of revolved around. And I think with Hackenberg, they've, they found that. And then the other thing is they field at 981. And like, I get it fielding percentage, like can only tell you so much. I got it. But 981 is 981. And so and there's th- just, and that's 10th of the country. Yeah. It's just, there's just so much margin for error with this team because they're not giving up games. They're pitching it pretty well, even if they're not necessarily blowing you away and they're going to score a ton of runs. And like, that's just going to be hard to beat if they're not if they're not going to give up games. It makes them just about impossible to beat. Virginia also, by the way, is a quite a good fielding team. Not quite nine eighty one. They're nine seventy six, uh, which is still top forty nationally. So I mean, both of these teams are going to have to earn it this weekend, and they certainly can do it. They're both hitting three twenty. Uh, they're third and fourth in the nation in batting average. Uh, they they can score a ton of runs. You know, UVA is averaging 9.6 runs per game. Virginia Tech is uh, 9.1 runs per game. I, th- they are, in many respects, pretty similar. And I think that that adds to, to the fun uh, of this weekend. I, I also think, though, that Virginia Tech is really going to, uh, you know, they're, they're walking into a really difficult place to play. And, you know, maybe Charlottesville, word association isn't difficult place to play you know it's not it's not like we're talking about walking into the new dude or um you know lubbock but uva is 23 and 2 at home this season they just do not lose home games and now virginia tech has to has to go there and try and win a series and uh, i mean virginia tech has been fine on the road um but they uh i don't think they've had to play anywhere uh, like this or, or had to play against any team that has such a definitive home field advantage. Yeah. We're going to find out, I think this weekend, how much magic there, there really is, uh, you know, with, with their park in Charlottesville and, and find out <laughs> how far that can kind of carry them. Cause it's, they're going to, I think they're going to get a good, a good punch from Virginia tech and, and Virginia is going to have to punch back. And, and so I think we, we will maybe get a good look at, you know, how much that home field advantage ends up mattering for the Cavaliers this weekend. 23 and two. It, it, it's remarkable. I, it, and especially so because Virginia is just a 500 team. If you take them out of Charlottesville, um, like literally they are eight and eight out, outside of Charlottesville. It's uh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy thing uh, to look at. So yeah, uh, big one, big one this weekend there in the Commonwealth, um, a lot of implications and 
one one last thing before we move on is the implications there. UVA top 15 right now in RPI pretty safely hosting, um, you know, not locked, but, but pretty safely hosting at this point. Virginia Tech, number 23 in RPI, we didn't have them hosting in our most recent update. They're, it's certainly very much on the table for them, and this weekend would be a, a big opportunity. You can point to a couple of little things in their resume that, that that's missing, and that's why they're bubble out in terms of host right now. But uh, they can absolutely change it this weekend. And, you know, even if they don't uh, find a way to win this series in Charlottesville this weekend, it's not like that's that's done for their hosting chances. They're, they're still going to be in the mix coming out of this weekend. But it would be a big feather in their cap to uh, to find a way to win the series this weekend. All right, let's move it on to Austin. Like I mentioned, top uh, top 25 matchup in the Big 12 as well. You've got Texas hosting Oklahoma State. The Cowboys are looking to get back on track following a difficult series loss at home against TCU. And uh, they still control, they, Oklahoma State still does control its own destiny in the Big 12 race. Uh, but that includes... Uh, this very difficult weekend in Austin. And if you want to talk about teams that play incredibly well at home, obviously the Longhorns, uh, they fit that bill as well. They're 18 and four in Dish Falk, uh, and they're going to be looking for some more of that home cooking here this weekend as they have an opportunity to get past Oklahoma State in the Big 12 standings. And uh, again, both teams in a position to host. Uh, but you know, still have some work to do down the stretch, and one of these teams is going to get a couple big wins this weekend. It, it feels a, a little like, and I know it's not really true, but it it does feel a little bit like this is kind of a you know last chance saloon kind of situation for these two teams, where you know Texas is you know already a game what is it a game and a half back, and if you lose another series like that, just gets a little bit harder, even though they have. You know, they still have Kansas in front of them the last weekend of the season. They have West Virginia, which is they're just starting enough games. Road, but, right, exactly. They're just running out of rope at this point. So, like, this feels like a last best chance there. And with Oklahoma State, it's more like, I mean, they're just, you know, they're still ahead in the loss column. You've you've mentioned just now in, in, in the uh, Monday episode how they still kind of control their own destiny. But if they don't, if they don't win this series, it doesn't give me a ton of confidence they would then beat Texas Tech in a series. Um so, and also, it, it almost doesn't matter because so they're a half game behind TCU as it stands, uh, and TCU owns the tiebreaker. So if they if they fall even further back, I mean, like it again, like both teams are just running out of real estate here. Texas is a game and a half off of TCU. They do own the tiebreaker though, so they have a little bit more room to, to work with. But uh, you know, both of these teams have played fifteen of the 24 big 12 games, the big 12 just doesn't play that many games. So, you know, we're, we're only looking at nine games left uh, for both teams. And uh, so six games left after this. And I mean, it's not like TCU is, is going to go. zero and six, you can't count on that. So you've, you've really got to take your, take it uh, yourself. You can't look for other teams to help you. Yeah. So like the more we've talked through that, the more I like stand by my original take, I guess, where it's just like, this does feel like, just a huge series. And if like, if you want it, like you, you got to win this series um, because the, the time is just running short as, as the Yogi Berra phrase goes, I believe like it gets late early in the big 12 uh, just because there aren't that many games, you know, and with the wonky scheduling where like TCU is 
out of conference for like two of the last four weekends. Like it's just going to get wonky and it gets, like I said, they're, they're going to be in the clubhouse potentially leading the conference and, you know, other teams may have too much work to do at that point. So, you know, well, remains to be seen, but it does feel important for these two teams and boy, Texas continues to just have a weird season. Don't they? I mean, last week was bizarre where they, they just get whomped by air force in the midweek and they have to really fight to win the second game with air force in the midweek and air force is pesky. You know, they just run ruled Kansas, which Kansas isn't very good. I get it, but they run ruled a big 12 team. Um, so air force is pesky, but then they, they go to the weekend and just absolutely put it on Baylor. Um, and Baylor's a team that I was just wrong on apparently. Like I, I, I kind of thought they could work around their pitching issues with a good offense and it just hasn't been enough. So Baylor's really struggling, but that was kind of felt like a get right series for Texas as much as there, there could be certainly they, they scored enough runs and it, but it just continues to not be particularly easy for them at any turn. Right. And it's not just on the field. It's also, you know, injuries, obviously we know about Tanner Witt, but you know, Eric Kennedy re-injured his hamstring against air force and that's up in the air now again. So even as they've had some positive results on the field and in terms of individual performance, we've talked about Skylar Messinger. I think he's hitting up close to 370 now, Like he's just been incredible as big 12 play has gone on. In addition to Ivan Melendez making a case for national player of the year, potentially they had a lot go right, but it just feels like this team is, is fighting itself in a lot of ways, but don't look now they win this series. Their RPI is in the top 10, like, basically everything that they still want to achieve is right there in front of them. And, and man, it just has not felt like that's the case, but here it is. Meanwhile, Oklahoma state, not only could they be watching the big 12 slip away if they don't win this weekend, they're in RPI danger right now. They, uh, they're 29 still project them as a host, but it was a little hard to do it. <laughs> you know, like they, they need this um, because, you know, if they lose this series, they you know, will fall behind Texas in the standings. They have uh, st- still have Texas Tech to play. Now, they don't have to go to Lubbock to, that, to do that. They get to do that in Stillwater, but they still have Texas Tech to play. And, you know, they're, this is just a big opportunity uh, to, to fix that RPI, which is again, just not good enough right now, if they're not going to win the big 12, um, you know, so it wasn't that long ago that we thought that Oklahoma state was, you know, the big 12 favorite and, you know, looking like a potential top eight seed, you know, we're now, we got to be more serious about the situation. Now we can't just project on it. We have to acknowledge that they're behind TCU in the standings and, uh, their RPI has reached, you know, a real, a real crisis point here that if they don't start making up ground, they're just not going to get it done. And, you know, I know they would love to host at Obrade stadium. Uh, you know, it's, it's a gorgeous ballpark. They play really well at home. Uh, if they're, if they're going to make sure that there's home baseball uh, in June, it's got to start this weekend against Texas. And um, I think this Friday night matchup, uh, could be a really special one between Justin Campbell and Pete Hansen. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to be really interested to see both teams, what they do from there. Tristan Stevens was better against Baylor. Can he repeat that performance? Uh, what are we going to see from Victor Medeiros on the Oklahoma state side? And uh, what, what are both bullpens going to going to bring to the table? Because we talked about how Oklahoma state had a bit of a different bullpen alignment last week. Um, you know, what's it going to look like now this week in, in Austin? And it feels like Texas on the same token has kind of been um, 
grasping for like, who are the guys we really, we really trust, you know? Um, and some of that has just been thrown in a disarray with things like, Hey, you know, we we're getting blitzed by air force. And also Aaron Nixon has had his struggles and he was going to probably be the most dependable guy in the mix. And, you know, he's, he's had his issues. So some of that has just been based on a couple of little things here, but it does feel like Texas is in a position where it's trying to, obviously as it tries to win games, it is also in a position where I think they're trying to kind of figure out like if, if a regional started tomorrow, like who do we feel like we trust? Cause after Pete Hansen, like whether you're talking about the rotation or the bullpen, like after Pete Hansen, I think it's a pretty good question, which is not to say they trust no one. I think there are some guys here to trust, but the only obvious answer is Pete Hansen at this point. So um, yeah, it, I think the last two games in particular of this series are going to be absolutely fascinating for precisely that reason. And that also puts some pressure on Hanson and uh, Campbell to deliver on Friday night, because if they don't go deep uh, now, we're talking about getting into those top bullpen arms earlier and, and that could create problems for, for either team. So uh, fascinating series uh, this weekend in Austin with, uh, as we have said, an awful lot on the line for, for both teams. Uh, okay. Let's go over to the sec. We got number one, Tennessee, hosting Auburn. Um, we all at this point probably know what Tennessee is. <laughs> um, that's clearly the best team in the country. Uh, but Auburn has been much better than expected. This is a team that uh, was not really expected to, I mean, they were not expected to contend for an SEC West title, which is exactly what they're doing. Uh, they were kind of expected to be more of a bubble regional team. And here they are playing uh, at, at just an incredibly high level. Uh, they already have 30 wins. They have a top 15 RPI. They're in a position that you can talk about. Uh, can they host? Auburn hasn't hosted since like 2010. Uh, Auburn, though, is embarking on an incredibly difficult two weeks here. They have this trip to Knoxville this weekend, and they go back home to Arkansas. If they're going to win the SEC West or if they're going to be in a position to host, they're going to need some wins over the next two weekends. I don't know whether that's two wins or three wins, four wins, uh, but they're going to need a few wins here, I think. And um, going to Knoxville, obviously, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Tennessee's only lost one home game this season. That was a couple weeks ago now to uh, to Alabama. Uh, but Auburn is uh, is a dangerous team with a really good offense and, and enough pitching to uh, to keep things really interesting for for the Vols who. Uh, Again, are 17 and one in the SEC. No team has ever been 17 and one in the SEC before, uh, but that, that's where Tennessee is coming into this weekend. It's another different challenge for for Tennessee. Just a little something different with this team. You know, with Alabama, it was kind of at that point, it was like, you know, this might be the best team they've seen, and I think that, you know, th- this might also be true again with Auburn now. And it, it's just it's a different look too that they've seen where you know, even with Alabama, which doesn't really have the guys on the mound necessarily, but they, they are still, Alabama is still trying to kind of get it done in a pretty traditional sense, but Auburn has had some luck with outside of Joseph Gonzalez. And by the way, you know, I have him written down as a note just because like, my goodness, has he been good lately? Um, so like, that'll be an interesting matchup to see how he fares. But I think generally on the mound, I'll be kind of interested to see what, what Auburn's able to do because they have had some luck of late just kind of throwing volume at the opponent. You know, it seems like every time I click on a box score from a Friday night game, it's like four innings for this guy and three innings for that guy. And then an inning and an inning or three, three, two, and one or whatever. Like they're really kind of mixing and matching out there. And, and you know, we've seen this before. Uh, remind me, uh, 
uh, Cody Greenhill, you know, a guy like that, like they've done that kind of thing before where, you know, long relievers, let's try to stack a couple of guys together. So that's not totally un- unprecedented for this team. It is a different look though for, for Tennessee. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how well it goes. Cause there also is a part of me that thinks when you're trying to do it like that, maybe it means you don't have as much confidence in any one guy. And so if you don't really have anybody who can settle things down, then what does it leave you with? So that's kind of something I'll be interested in is how much does Auburn have to scramble on the mound relatively early in this series? What I, one of the things that stands out to me about this series is that Tennessee has the best offense in the country, right? Like we're, uh, we're very familiar with their ability to hit home runs and and score and and all the rest of that. Um, This is a team uh, that, the offense has not been not been in question at all. Maybe it's not the best offense in the country anymore. Now that I look at this, they are they're no longer top five nationally in scoring, but best offense in the SEC. Best offensive player this weekend, though, probably is Auburn. It's probably Sonny Deshara, who don't look now, 40 games into the season, is hitting 448. It's remarkable. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, he was a really good hitter at Samford. We just never would have imagined that he would come into the SEC and and continue hitting at such a high level. But uh, I mean, when Auburn brought in all those transfers, multiple guys from Samford, I thought collectively it was going to be a really good thing for Auburn. I didn't think that any of them were going to be superstars. I thought they would all add, you know, depth and, and be good quality players for Auburn. But uh, that has not been the case at all. Uh, Sonny Deshara has, has been exceptional. You talked about Ivan Melendez as a potential player of the year candidate. Uh, Sonny Deshara is absolutely that. And, you know, it's uh, where, I don't know where Auburn would be without him. They'd still be a good team, but they wouldn't be, they would not be what they are. He's also kind of a guy that, you know, he fits in well in this series in that like Tennessee has all kinds of juice in their dugout, right? I mean, that's just kind of their persona. It works well for them. Some people don't like it, but it is what it is. Like I, personally just joe editorializing like i think it's good to have a team like that in college baseball anyway long story short we don't have to we certainly don't have to wade into the waters that uh (laughs) about what tennessee is or isn't from from that standpoint but there are a lot of other people out there willing to do that but sonny to share has a little juice too like that's a guy who like has charisma and like it's he's you know auburn's team is different so it gets expressed differently but that's a guy who who has some some charisma he's he's in a short time become a big fan favorite even before he was doing everything he's doing he was becoming a fan favorite and a cold hero at auburn um you know some of that is because he is a thick king like it is a a body type you just don't see <laughs> frankly six one two sixty three is the listing yeah yeah i'll he's, take the uh, over like, yeah, he, he's a he's just a unique body type in college baseball. So that's part of it. But but he's he's got some charisma. He's got some juice like he's going to fit in well in the series like that is a guy who when the temperature gets turned up in every Tennessee series at Lindsey Nelson Stadium, the temperature gets turned up. And that is, I think, a great uh, benefit to Tennessee. Typically, they like to play that way. They want to play that way. I think it's fun when they play that way. Uh, Sonny Deshera though is going to be here for that smoke probably like he he seems like the type of guy who is kind of um, okay with that like he, he strikes me as a guy who would thrive in that kind of situation so um, you were right to point that out because I think there are going to be some really fun matchups with him at the plate against like you know throw a dart at a dartboard and pick which Tennessee 
flamethrower you want to see him face. Cause there are plenty of fun matchups that could come out of that. But uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely a guy to watch for Auburn. And if they, if they win this series, you have to imagine he's going to be, or even win a game and challenge to be in the series. Like he's going to have to be right in the middle of it. Speaking of that Tennessee pitching staff, uh, Tony Vitello said on his radio show this week that Chase Dollander will not start, but they are hopeful he might be able to pitch this weekend. Uh, he, of course, was hit by a line drive in the arm two weeks ago now in that Alabama series. Blake Tidwell is slated to get that sun, uh, Saturday start in between the freshman Burns and Beam. Uh, Tidwell was really good in his first SEC start of the year last week against Florida. I would expect more of the same, but um, Tennessee avoids the very challenging question of, okay, so what do you do about your rotation now for another week? Uh, and we'll get to see another week of, uh, of, of what Blade Tidwell is like having, you know, just another week to, to progress and get back to full health after that shoulder soreness that uh, delayed the start to his season. So um, continuing to develop there at Tennessee, but, um, looks like we will see Blade Tidwell on Saturday and not Chase Dollander, at least in a starting role. It's a uh, convenient, uh, convenient timing there for Tennessee. Like, obviously, it was a freak thing with, with Dolander, but you know, just the fact that Tidwell was just another way in which this has kind of been a charmed season for Tennessee. It just so happens that Tidwell is like more or less ready to go right around the time Dolander gets hit by the hit by that line drive. Indeed. Yeah. He went, I think it was four last week against Florida. We'll see if he gets a little more leash or not this week, but uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it would have been different if that had happened, you know, a month earlier or even two weeks earlier. Um, so yeah, uh, incredible how it all has played out for, uh, for the Vols. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's head West um, to the big West where it's first versus second as UC Santa Barbara heads up the coast a little bit to take on Cal Poly. Now, we have not spent hardly any time talking about the Big West on the podcast in months, really, since uh, probably since Long Beach State got swept by Sac State. Uh, quietly, uh, UCSB has been the best team in the conference. That's uh, hardly surprising, given uh, the, the recent history of UCSB. They are 16-2 and two in Big West play. Uh, I talk about them pretty much weekly on our top 25 call. Uh, we have yet to rank them. And in part, that is because the Big West, uh, I don't know how charitable we want to be here. The Big West just isn't good this year. They have a conference RPI of 21. Uh, now that is, we, we don't have to get into the RPI and Big West discussion here. They are not the 21st best conference, but they're it's clearly a down year for the Big West. And that can be seen clearly as Cal Poly, the number two team in the conference right now, uh, has an RPI north of 100. So this doesn't have a ton of postseason implications. Uh, what it does have, though, is the Big West does not play a conference tournament. So if anyone is going to catch UC Santa Barbara, and really if anyone is going to do it, it's going to be Cal Poly, it has to happen this weekend. Uh, UCSB cannot be allowed to get any further in front, any further in front, and we can just fully start talking about their magic number to clinch. And uh, it'll happen sooner than later. They're three and a half games in front already. So Cal Poly absolutely needs to make hay this weekend, especially with that series being at home. It's an interesting kind of matchup here where, where you've got, you know, Cal Poly might have, you know, it certainly has the best player on the board, right? With Brooks Lee, who's 
like lived up to every expectation. Like all the, all, all the, the reports we get back from scouts in the West coast are glowing. Like, as you can imagine, and he's a guy, this is a guy that might go first overall in the draft. Yeah. He's just lived up to like every last expectation, uh, you know, so far this season. So he's been outstanding. And then, you know, Drew Thorpe might be the second best player <laughs> like on the board here. Right. I mean, he's having an incredible season. And again, like stuff from West coast scouts suggests that like they are very high on him and it's easy to see why. Right. So, but then like Santa Barbara just has like a really pretty well-rounded club, which I think is a, you know, a testament to Andrew Checkets and his staff. Like it's a, you know, pretty solid offense. And Oh, by the way, like Jordan Sprinkle, a team USA alum who was kind of thought of as the guy who that would kind of center around has not been as expected. He's been, you know, okay at, at best really um, out there. So it, it's not him that's driving everything. Like it's just a pretty good, well-rounded offense. They're getting a lot of, a little bit from a lot of different guys. And then on the mound, like Corey Lewis is having a really nice year, but they've found their way into a pretty solid rotation with Corey Lewis and Mike Gutierrez and Ryan Gallagher. And it's a pitching staff that's gone through a decent amount of turnover the last couple of years. When you consider how many guys they've gotten drafted from that rotation. And last year, their bullpen wasn't particularly good and they've turned that unit over largely. And that seems like an improved unit generally out there. So they've done a nice job on the mound after again, lots of turnover for good and, and bad reasons. Um, so you've got the stars on one side, you know, with, with Cal Poly, and then you've got really just kind of a solid, you know, a solid team in, in UC Santa Barbara that keeps piling up wins. And at this point has just become, it has really become the class, of the big West. Like, I just don't think there's any other way to, to put that. I mean, they have, they've achieved a status kind of not unlike now what we talked about with, with DBU in the Missouri Valley, right? It's like UC Santa Barbara is just going to be there. I think at this point, that's just kind of what it is. Yeah, uh, UCSB has pitched really well. Uh, they're they're the top twenty five team ERA in the country. Corey Lewis, uh, you know, has just taken over there at the front of the rotation. Just seems like the next guy up. And uh, Ryan Gallagher has been quite good as a freshman. And I, I, the depth piece that they have on the mound has uh, has really stood out. But they've uh, they've been able to ride those starters pretty well and uh, just kind of kind of roll from there offensively. This is a team that hits for more power than um, maybe we're used to seeing from uh, from UCSB. Brock Mortensen has nine home runs, and uh, that leads the team. But pretty much anyone offensively has the chance to run the ball out of the ballpark. And uh, you know, again, it's it seems like it's a depth play um, that UCSB just any any guy can be the guy, uh, and they've had some really high scoring games and. Uh, again, it, it's a school that's always going to pitch well under Andrew Checkets, but the the offense has has more depth than uh, than you might expect. And uh, yeah, Cal Poly, it's incredible that they have you know Thorpe and and Lee uh, that those guys have have been able to develop the way that they've developed there at Cal Poly. They both came in as big deals out of high school. Uh, they had the best recruiting class in the Big West when they landed those two guys. It was it was clear what they were getting and they have continued to be that, but it's also a little unfortunate that here we are three years on, both of them are probably looking at being top 100 picks and Cal Poly is very close to not getting a postseason appearance out of it. Now, obviously 2020 was lost and 2021 was weird, especially for these big West teams, but uh, they, it's not like there've been close calls either. If, um, if, if this year continues the way it's gone. So 
a little disappointing that the Cal Poly's in this situation, but uh, with a big weekend here, their, their postseason hopes aren't going to necessarily be lost, but at the same time, there is an awful lot riding on this uh, to, uh, to close that gap this weekend. Otherwise, uh, they're going to be looking at a kind of long final month of the season. This is also just an all-timer uh, series between teams from beautiful locales, you know, Santa Barbara against San Luis Obispo. Like it's just an all, all-timer in terms of, I mean, you, you know, we could talk about the others, right? Like uh, I'm sure Pepperdine plus inter West coast team X, right. Is always going to be in the mix, but uh, in terms of, of matchups of beautiful places, like this one is, is hard to beat. Yeah. Uh, Pepperdine USD is probably the WCC's best, uh, best twosome. Uh, you know, somebody might argue for Provo. Um, right. Depends on what backdrop. you, what you like in your topography. Right. I mean, right. if you're a mountain person, like yes, Provo's in terms of mountains, like, yes, I think Provo is probably, probably the leader in the clubhouse there. Although, you know, you get a little bit at Reno and Salt Lake city. There's some of that. I mean, there's so. some mountains in that USD backup backdrop. I feel like, uh, maybe I'm just making that up, but, uh, the other one to talk about here is of course, Hawaii. So maybe, oh, well, sure. maybe, yeah. maybe Santa Barbara going to Hawaii would be would be the way to go. But Cal Poly and San Luis Obispo, certainly, certainly no slouch, uh, beautiful views uh, out there. Alrighty, so those are the headlining series for the week. There are a couple other notable ones that we'll certainly talk about on Monday uh, in the recap uh, podcast, talking about Georgia, LSU, AM and Vanderbilt, and TCU and Florida State. But uh, uh, those are the ones that we're, we're highlighting here. Joe, let's uh, let's go under the radar. Uh, what do you got this week? Pretty robust week, if, if I'm honest. I feel like, you know, I've got one we'll talk the most about, but I, I, I would not be shocked if we end up hitting on a couple of these because it's, it's a pretty good week, I feel like. So, uh, okay, A-10, Davidson visiting St. Louis. That is one and two in the A-10. Uh, shouts to Davidson, really good year. Uh, that offense is dangerous. Uh, that is certainly going to be, they are one of those reg- those teams that, as a four seed could be a little bit uh, of a tough draw just because they can really swing it. So you know, uh, if Davidson was, ever has been a tough four seed before, you know, I, I can't, you know, I can't say like, if only there was a very prominent example <laughs> of Davidson being a pesky four seed, but we'll never know. We'll just never know. So uh, UTSA at middle Tennessee state. Don't look now kind of a team, a series between teams battling for at large bits, um, which you know, UTSA fine. Like if you'd have told me at the beginning of the year, like I'd have been like, okay, yeah, they've taken some steps forward. I, I can see it. But the Middleton to see has kind of backdoored their way into this. A series win against La Tech last weekend was a big part of that. But, I don't know. They they beat Auburn like two months ago. Well, sure. But we kind of at the time, were just kind of willing to be like, that's weird. And that might be damning of Auburn. Right. And now we're kind of looking at it the other way, which is like, huh, you know, Auburn still is pretty good. And Middleton to see might be also good. Right. So uh, we are looking at a little bit differently, but, um, so I'm just saying they gave us, they gave us heads up that, that they might they, be well, actually they, certainly, certainly they tried. We did not listen. We were dismissive of that initially. SEMO uh, at Belmont, uh, OVC one and two, uh, it seems like, uh, Teddy and I have to decide between the two every week for who's going to get the auto bid in the field. Well, of the, the other thing is there, the, the team that doesn't is, is a bubble team. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too. Like SEMO has. SEMO's RPI, like I think I wrote about it when I did my first like RPI centric thing for three strikes about like, keep an eye on, I was pretty dismissive. I was just like, keep an eye on SEMO, but I have a hard time believing their RPI is going to be able to hang around. Um, And lo and behold, here they are. So 
Belmont at least has the advantage of they, you know, they get to play like Vanderbilt and Tennessee and the midweek and stuff. And that is extremely helpful, particularly this year. <laughs> uh, okay. Bethune Cookman at Alabama state. That is a big swack matchup there. Um, Loyola Marymount at Gonzaga. Um, Loyola Marymount has had a really weird year where they were not very good to begin the season. And they have kind of started to figure it out in West coast conference play. So they are going to look to uh, play spoiler for a Gonzaga team that is obviously trying to win the WCC. Uh, they are now playing, obviously we talked about it on the Monday episode. They're playing with some heavy hearts, maybe a little extra motivation there, but Gonzaga is a team that is winning the WCC. They're ranked pretty good. They're looking to host. And yet, I'm still kind of waiting on them to dominate someone, right? Like they're winning two of three every weekend. And it feels like one of the two wins is kind of shaky. And that's, that's maybe a little bit unfair and a little bit harsh, but when we're talking about teams that we're looking to host, especially from a mid-major conference, that's kind of what you're looking for, right? Where like Southern Miss has been nothing, if not dominant, right? Like Gonzaga has been a little bit different. Now they have high end wins. They can point to not taking those away from them, but I was kind of looking for them to be a little more dominant in the WCC and it hasn't it just hasn't really happened yet. So that's kind of something I'm watching there. Uh, Lamar at Sam Houston state, uh, old Southland conference foes. Uh, Lamar of course, soon will be going back to the Southland conference and something that's just like a weird little situation there. Uh, best two teams in the Texas side of the WAC. There's the West coast side and there's the Texas side. And those are the best two teams in the Texas side. I've kind of overlooked how good Sam Houston's offense has been. They have two guys hitting over 400. Um, like that, that, you know, in a year without, obviously they're a couple of years removed now from um, Colton Cowser, but uh, they are, they're still swinging it there. So that is a, a series to watch there in the whack, but the, the main event here, and I will, I will let Teddy go a little more on this because it is right in his wheelhouse friends. That is central Michigan visiting ball state. Uh, really the only two teams in the Mac that, are relevant this year. And I don't mean that as a pejorative, I mean it more as a kudos to them because they are, the two of them are five games clear of anyone else in the conference. And that's third place Toledo and also shouts to Toledo. Cause that program was not very good a couple of years ago and they've actually been pretty decent last couple of years, but central Michigan is doing it again. I wrote about this in three strikes. Like they kind of are the new, the new dynasty in the Mac. They're 82 and 15 in the last three years in the Mac. They've been to a regional the last two full seasons. They're eyeing a third this year. They've won a game in each of the last two regionals. They've got a scary Friday guy in Andrew Taylor. That is relevant, not just in Mac weekends, but oh, by the way, if they're a four seed, that's not a guy you want to have to face off against. Um, I wrote a little about how they're doing it a little bit differently this year. There's, they've got a little more physicality in the lineup. It's not quite so much small ball, which you know, uh, Coach Jordan Bischel thinks gives them you know, a little more room for error offensively, you know, gives them a little different dynamic but it, it's it's very real talent because Andrew Taylor is the the headlining guy but Jordan Patty is also a very talented pitcher they found some extra depth on the pitching staff this year because Grant Navarra and Jordan Patty got off to slow starts this year so that was kind of a blessing in disguise because it kind of forced them to figure some other stuff out so um in Ball State you know it's poor timing for Ball State because they've really been really good the last couple of years. And because central Michigan is doing what it's doing, it hasn't mattered as much as it would otherwise. So you, you kind of feel like that's, that's tough timing there for, for Rich Maloney and his squad. So, um, but the matchup of the year, of the Mac this weekend uh, in Muncie, and you know, this is, this is basically the last chance for any team to catch central Michigan, not from a mathematical standpoint, 
But really, from a realistic standpoint, this is the last chance for someone other than Central Michigan to win this league. 21 and one in the max. That's what that's what Central Michigan is. So, you know, Tennessee, I see your 17 and one. And uh, like, let's talk when we get 21 and one. Okay. So, in a couple of weeks, come and, well, like come and the, tell me about how you're 21 and one. One of the other interesting things about that, too, is that I think we've touched on this, but the Mac is doing four game weekends again, which is a carryover from the, you know, COVID affected schedule from last year. And so they're, they're sweeping four game series. And like, I don't really care who you're playing and how overmatched your opponent is like sweeping a four game series, especially when two of those games are seven innings, which of course, like creates a little more uncertainty, the shorter the game is uh, that's, that's just really impressive. They, they've swept five straight four game series, which is just really, really tough to do. 18 straight wins. It's the second longest winning streak in the country this year. Only Tennessee's 23 gamer is longer. Um, Ball State, they're good. They're really good, uh, but they aren't. They aren't what they were last year. Neither of these teams is what they were last year. When uh, I spent a lot of time arguing that the MAC deserved an at-large bid for whichever team didn't win the conference. Ultimately, that was Ball State, uh, and Ball State was officially in the last four out of the NCAA tournament. They are not that good this year. Central is not as good as it was a year ago. They both have turned over the roster an awful lot. Both of those teams were really old last year. Uh, But Ball State just keeps on keeping on, and Central Michigan keeps on keeping on. And uh, you hit it. Taylor is incredible. Uh, I wouldn't want to face Jordan Patty early either. I know early he wasn't quite as good, but that's a guy uh, that threw a perfect game a year ago. And, you know, I mean, when he is right and they can run Taylor and Patty, you know, back to back, that's, I mean, that's dangerous uh, come NCAA tournament time. And, and that's what, you know, teams have found out in the last two NCAA tournaments that this is not a team, you know, Andrew Taylor wasn't a part of the 19 team, but that they're nobody want, nobody's going to want to see central Michigan in, uh, in their regional. And uh, I think last time we talked about them, maybe that was on Monday, maybe it was last week. I said they were a lock for South Bend. I've done more in a couple more projections since then or whatever. And um, they're probably not a lock for South Bend. So Notre Dame might not be stuck with them because uh, just the way things are shaking out, um, you know, Wright State is a very easy team to send to South Bend as well. So uh, Notre Dame might, might luck out a Nazi Central Michigan in South Bend for the second year in a row. But, uh, you know, that's assuming Central Michigan can get through the MAC tournament. Um, this weekend matters a lot for that, not just because it is a matter of who would be the top seed in the conference tournament between Ball State and Central Michigan. And it's going to be one of those two teams, Toledo, it's seven and a half games back already. Like you can you can count them out of this. Um, but the, the MAC tournament is returning to conference sites this year. They um, They have been off campus for quite some time. Then they pulled the plug on a conference tournament um, in the immediate aftermath of COVID in 2020. So they did not play a conference tournament last year in 21. It is back this year, just in a slightly scaled back format. So they're going to conference sites. And so basically what that means is a lot of people are going to Mount Pleasant or Muncie. And, um, you know, it, it is significant to have home field advantage in a conference tournament. And, you know, I mean, even as it stands, Ball State's two and a half games back. So it's a little hard to see them catching uh, CMU kind of regardless of how this weekend goes. 
but it is notable. It's in the series is in Muncie this year. Last year it was in Mount Pleasant, and that definitely played into the chips' hands. Um, but it, it's I, it's just hard to see anyone beating Central Michigan in the MAC right now. They are they have been incredible, and uh, this is a different challenge to be sure. There's there's no other team really like Ball State and Central Michigan in the in the MAC, but uh, definitely a a big series for both of these teams and. Uh, you're right. It's the last chance for anyone to uh, to stop the the train for for Central Michigan in terms of uh, uh, a regular season conference title. I don't know if we'll end up having room for him on our all names team, but Ball State's top hitter is Trenton Quartermain, which is pretty good. That's pretty good. Like it may it may or may not make our names team, which uh, by the way should be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, but that's that's a pretty solid name. I like that. It is. It, it definitely is. One thing that um, you know Ball State doesn't quite have this year is, you know, if you've been tracking the draft or tracking Ball State, um, you know, they have had a big time arm the last few years. In, in 2020, it was Drake Jameson, uh, who made a lot of noise, even in a shortened season because of what he did on opening day against Stanford. And then the following year, they had Kyle Nicholas. And, you know, he went in the, the second round. Jameson was a sub first rounder or back of the first round. And, you know, then last year it wasn't quite at that level, but they had a lot of really good pitching. And, and this year they don't quite have that draft guy. Uh, it's still a team that pitches pretty well, uh, especially at the top end, if they're able to, to stick to their main guys. Uh, but it, if you're looking for who is the, the Ball State draft pitcher, because the last few years they've, they've had some big ones, it, it doesn't, it's not really there this year. Andrew Taylor is the best draft prospect on the field this weekend. Um, but still, still a good pitching staff that you're going to see from, from ball state, especially Tyler Schweitzer, uh, who's been their ace. Alrighty. That's going to do it for us. Uh, previewing week 11, uh, looks like a great weekend of college baseball here as, uh, as the calendar will flip, uh, from April to May. Uh, so make sure you're following us. On Twitter, I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We'll have more analysis there and plenty more on the website, baseballamerica.com. If you're going there now, you can check out uh, this week's projected field of 64. Uh, Joe mentioned three strikes. Uh, certainly check that out as well. Uh, and there will be more to, to come throughout the weekend uh, as uh as we get into the week 11 action, we'll be back here with another edition of the podcast on Monday, uh, wrapping up all of that action from around the country. Remember we come at you twice a week during the season, Mondays, uh, recapping the weekend Thursdays, previewing it. So make sure you are subscribed to the baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get the podcast, your podcast, you can find us hit that subscribe or follow button. And we'll, uh, we'll come into your phone twice a week there uh, with the Baseball America College podcast. All right. So until Monday, uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Teddy for Joe. We'll talk to you next time. After the end of a good fight, deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp refreshing taste because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, 
the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Trick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.